Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. The town of Ellettsville has a 100-year history of flooding, and Fire Chief Mike Cornman says this month's heavy rains and flash flooding left no way in or out of the town. Cornman spoke in the Ellettsville Town Council meeting two weeks ago. To the south on Hart Strait, Rattle Road, you couldn't even get to Deer Run. You, had, you couldn't go down Thomas Road because Thomas and Vernal Pike was closed. You couldn't go farther out because 48 and Vernal Pike was closed. The only way to get into town was Hard Scrabble Road, 43, uh, Reeves Road, and Ellettsville if you get that area. But then you couldn't go any further. The town is working with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management on a flood study. Ellettsville officials say they hope the study will help them devise some solutions. Area resident Ron Waite told the council they need to act on flood control now. Waite also said the Ellettsville Town Council shouldn't limit their focus to downtown. Waite is the funeral director at Chandler Funeral Home on State Road 46, east of downtown. He told the council that rainwater from a school parking lot across the street from his business met with rising floodwaters from Jack's Defeat Creek behind the funeral home. It was caught in the middle as the water rose quickly. Almost not in enough time to get out of the building. I went next door to the flower shop. They didn't even know what was happening. By the time she just put a couple things up that were important to her, she got into the van, she had to crawl through the back of the van, her delivery van, to get out. That water was moving extremely fast, and I don't think anybody realized, because you guys concentrate on downtown, but you don't concentrate down towards us, there by the Village Inn, our area, and so on. Waite said the fast-rising waters across State Road 46 created treacherous conditions for those trying to evacuate. We had a staff member that got knocked down um, in the rush of that water coming across that sidewalk and coming across the road, um, trying to get across the street to get the car out of the way. So it was very stressful, let's say the least. Waite said Chandler Funeral Home is still assessing the damage from flooding earlier this month, but he said the business sustained some $200,000 worth of flood damage in December of 2013. Waite told the council that flood control should be the town's number one priority course with flood insurance but still $200,000 in damage is quite a bit of damage for a business um, to deal with and everybody was concentrating on downtown and completely forgot about us. The pressure walk today we had to we have visitation tonight but pressure wash the parking lot out that costs money we have a hearse that's damaged now um, we have motorcycles that have you know Mr. Chandler's motorcycles that were in our garage down there that are damaged my RV has got damage to it um, that's parked down there. There's all kinds of situations 
um, that, that have arose around our area, but it doesn't seem to be getting fixed. Interim town manager Mike Farmer assured Waite the area around the funeral home is part of the town's flood study. In recent months, the council has made attempts to acquire property along Jack's Defeat Creek. Following a recommendation by the DNR, officials say they would like to restore the properties to a natural state, allowing for better absorption of floodwaters. The council has been hesitant to use eminent domain to acquire the property. Waite asked the council to prioritize flood control by whatever means they have. Getting that property by eminent domain that you discussed at the last town council meeting, um, that, needs to, that needs to move forward. That's part of all of that and, and all of these things that Mike's working towards and, and the engineers are working towards. We've got to get this stuff done because there's only so many times flood insurance will cover your building. Yes. And three is the number. And if we were hit, have been hit as hard as we were last time, the third time we would have to tear the building down, completely move the business. Mm -hmm. Or we'd have to raise that building up three feet. It's not easy to do a building that's built in 1976. That's not, that's not a cheap process. It basically will kill the business. Interim town manager Farmer said the town is collecting information from Ellettsville businesses on the damages they've sustained. And I do want to reiterate anybody that has damages and has uh, claims that they might want to enter into uh, uh, information for the county. Uh, they'll, they'll be assembling all that information and we can be your uh, advocate for getting that information to the county. And then the county will work with all the other uh, agencies in the state to see if they meet the threshold for assistance from the federal government. Meanwhile, cleanup efforts from the flooding continue, but Farmer said the freeze that followed the flooding caused some delays. Farmer is working with the council on a date to present the flood study's results. Hoosiers will heat homes and businesses less in the future, but rely more on air conditioning as Indiana's climate warms. They'll also get more of their energy from natural gas and renewable sources as those become more cost-effective throughout the rest of the century. That's according to the latest Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment Report from Purdue University, released on February 19th. Extreme heat, which will become more common during Indiana summers, will reduce the capacity of power plants, transmission lines, and substations, potentially causing energy disruption. Variations in precipitation could cause more spring flooding and summer drought, affecting energy supplies delivered by barges and disrupting cooling needs for power plants. Jeff Dukes, director of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center, said, quote, we will have more need for dealing with warm weather conditions than cold weather problems, unquote. Indiana currently gets about 73% of its energy from burning coal, 18% from natural gas, 5% from wind, and the rest of, from other gases, hydroelectric sources, solar, and biomass. That is expected to continue to change as natural gas and renewable sources become cheaper than coal, and coal-fired plants reach the end of their expected lifespans. Lee Raymond, the report's lead author, says that coal is being priced out of the market. Natural gas has already cut coal significantly based on price, and renewables have become much cheaper. If those trends continue, which the highest quality predictions seem to indicate, then coal will likely disappear from the energy mix. 
China has banned imports of recyclable material, and the result is that U.S. cities are incinerating it. Plastics, paper, and glass that Americans set aside for recycling are burned in huge volumes. However, many incineration facilities lack the high-tech scrubbing tools that keep chemical emissions well under EPA air quality standards. Without those controls, incinerators release toxic gases and ash, threatening the health of those who live nearby. For example, at the massive Convanta incinerator in Chester City, Pennsylvania, some 200 tons of recycling material has arrived every day since China's import ban came into effect last year. Experts are concerned that burning plastic recycling creates dioxin emissions that will worsen an already serious health situation in Chester City. Health statistics show that almost 4 in 10 children there suffer from asthma, and the rate of ovarian cancer there is 64% higher than in the rest of Pennsylvania. Lung cancer rates are 24% higher. For WFHB, I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. And I'm Todd Wicks. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. And now for some good news. Gray wolves once thrived in California, but by the 1920s, human extermination and habitat loss forced this important predator species out of the state. The good news, a hundred years later, gray wolves are flourishing there. Anti-wolf politicians have made numerous attempts to strip federal protections, in 2014, the California Fish and Game Commission voted to extend protections for the wolves in that state. In 2017, ranchers claimed the wolves threatened their livestock and filed a lawsuit attempting to strip state protections from the wolves in California. However, the Environmental Law Center Earth Justice recently won a lawsuit protecting the wolves. And there's more good news today. Thanks to a lawsuit brought by the Center for Food Safety, bees are getting a boost. A federal court has concluded that the EPA's approval of dozens of neonicotinoid pesticides, or neonics for short, was illegal. Pesticide companies announced that they will take dozens of these bee-killing pesticides off the market next year as a result of the lawsuit. The EPA has also agreed to deadlines by which to assess neonic impacts on other endangered pollinators. Those announcements are the first time in history such steps have been required for addressing the effects of neonics on ecosystems. Bees and other pollinators are becoming extinct due to human use of pesticides such as neonics as well as parasites, habitat loss, and climate change. Bees and other insects pollinate over one-third of our food. Next up is this week's feature. In today's feature, WFHB correspondent Norm Holy talks with Indiana DNR wildlife specialist Rex Waters about Indiana's eagle population. The eagle was nearly wiped out statewide in the late 19th century. Waters 
was involved with the successful reestablishment of Eagles at Lake Monroe. My understanding is that the bald eagle was largely gone from Indiana in the 1890s, and I guess that was through hunting and loss of habitat. Is that correct? Uh, loss of habitat was the primary condition back at that time, and then, of course, uh, early pioneer periods, uh, everything that would eat one of their domestic animals was considered to be a threat, so quite often uh, the early pioneers looked upon any predator as a problem. So the bear, the wolf, the mountain lion, and the eagle, and other animals were uh, removed from the wild environment in order to preserve their domestic animals. Uh, in Indiana, the last successful eagle nest was in 1897, with the draining of many of our native wetlands. And since the eagle was primarily a fish-eating bird, that was a major impact on uh, the population here. Much later, did the DT issue influence Indiana eagles? Right, right during the period of time when we began to develop insecticides, especially uh, DDT and, and some of the others that were uh, widely used to control uh, mosquitoes and other pests, those had a very bad effect on all the top predators, and eagles particularly uh, being at the top of their food chain in that uh, the chemicals would run into the water the smaller fish would get a small concentration, the larger fish would eat them, and the larger fish were eaten by the eagles. And uh, as the concentration got larger in those birds, their success in nesting was dramatically impacted, and also the success in nesting of songbirds and many other bird species. Now, there, there weren't any nest sites in Indiana until the 1980s, is that correct? Actually, the 1990s. Um, 1897 was our last wild nest. Uh, we had eagles that were migrating through the area and would reside in the area but not nest in the area. Uh, and this is the whole state of Indiana. Uh, so we would see them here during the spring and fall migrations. We'd occasionally get immature birds or unmated adults that would be around the state, but we had no active nesting until after the reintroduction period. We began our bald eagle reintroduction with the uh, passage of a bill that uh, allowed the non-game fund to be uh, a checkoff and a donation site for Indiana State taxpayers and people that wanted to donate to it. And it was a designated fund, a fund that could only be spent for non-game reintroductions and for other non-game activity. Uh, the funding uh, was significant enough in 84 that we began looking at our first project uh, in 85, we began that first project, which was the reintroduction of bald eagles. Now, were you involved in that original program? We were lucky enough to be on the site that they decided to do the reintroduction at. Uh, in the fall of 84, uh, leading into 85, our non-game biologist, Chris Iverson, was doing a survey of the state and looking for the best place to begin that reintroduction effort. Every January for many years, as part of a national count, we would do a bald eagle census. Uh, here in Indiana, uh, Monroe Lake had had some of the higher counts of those periods of times. And when uh, Chris came to look at our property, we had three or four eagles on the property, which was the highest count in the state on that day. So he decided that uh, this would be the good place to try and reintroduce them since they were already using the area. How did you uh, reintroduce the eagle to the Monroe area? 
Well, we identified location that would be the best place to create what we call a hacking tower. The hacking tower is a term that we've borrowed from the Falconers. Basically what that means is that uh, we have a platform, a structure that's designed to allow birds that have been in captivity to be reintroduced to the wild. Uh, in order to do that so we'd have the highest success rate with the birds staying in the area, we would get young birds from a wild nest, birds that had been raised uh, by their parents. And these came from Wisconsin initially, and their population of wild eagles was high enough that we would look for nests that had three chicks. And uh, with three young eaglets in a nest, that's a challenge for the parents to sometimes provide enough food for them. And so we would identify those three bird nests and then go into those and either take the largest bird or the smallest bird so that the other two left behind would be close to the same size and age and have the best chance of survival. Uh, eagles lay their eggs progressively, so they'll lay an egg today and a little later they'll lay another egg and a little bit later they'll lay another egg. So the oldest eaglet would be the largest eaglet in most cases and the youngest eaglet would have the least chance if there was a, a challenge for food. So by either taking the largest or the smallest, we would be able to give the other two a better chance of survival. When you brought them to Indiana, did you intentionally try to avoid human interaction, or did you...? No, we tried to keep the interaction with them as minimal as possible. Uh, from the eaglet's standpoint, they were exposed to people when a person climbed into the nest and removed them from the nest. Then they were transported immediately to Indiana, to Monroe, and they were exposed to people when we were taking them out of their captive cage and putting them into the hacking tower. We had one-way glass on the back side of it. Uh, they would hear noise behind the nest. Uh, all of a sudden, fish, their favorite thing to eat, would fall into the nest site from uh, behind them, and uh, they never saw people feed them. We put three birds to a, a nest area so we could raise 12 birds at one time, and that would give us the opportunity to release them as they became ready for release at roughly 11 to 12 weeks of age. We would go in at night while they were calm, and uh, they would be banded when we first got them with a federal and a state band. Then on the night before their release, we would wing tag them with an orange it's uh, like a, a coat sleeve that would go over their wing with a black letter that would uh, distinguish which bird they were, and that would be on both wings. And then we'd also set them uh, on a primary tail feather with a radio transmitter and a unique frequency so that once they left the site, we could track them uh, with that radio frequency. Uh, at that point, then, we would put them back into the cage and then early the next morning open the cage door before daylight so that they could then fly out whenever they were ready. Uh, we would then support them by providing food on feeding structures and platforms around the hack tower and in the nest in case they wanted to come back into it. Uh, it was very rare that they would go back into the cage, but the whole point of the operation was to let them learn to fly here in Indiana. And where they first learned to fly is where they imprint on as their home base. Uh, five years later, when they become sexually mature and ready to re-nest, uh, those eaglets tend to come back between 50 and 100 miles of where they first learned to fly. So it was our hope that our birds would uh, then return to Indiana to be nesting eagles in Indiana.
Roughly how many uh, eagles are there now in Indiana? Well, our first active nest that was successful was in 1991. Right now we're pushing over 300 nest sites They're scattered throughout the state of Indiana. It sounds like the situation is very good at the moment, and thank you very much for a uh, very enlightening talk. You're welcome, and we have a, a non-game fund that's still active, and uh, donations are readily needed. How does one make a donation to that? On your state tax form in April, there's a place where you can make a direct donation of refunds that you get back into that fund, or you can make a direct donation to the non-game fund at any of our properties or mailing it into the Division of Fish and Wildlife. Today I've been speaking with Rex Waters. He's the Reservoir Wildlife Specialist for Monroe Reservoir and a specialist on eagle population and reintroduction. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Up next is In Nature. This is In Nature. That, my friends, is the Hudsonian godwit. This is a large shorebird recently seen in early September at Goose Pond. It's a rare bird for our area. Adults have long dark legs and long pink bill with a slight upturned curve and dark at the tip. The upper parts of the body are mottled brown and the underparts are chestnut. The tail is black and the rump is white. They show black wing linings in flight. Their breeding habitat is in the far north near the tree line in northwestern Canada and Alaska and the shores of Hudson Bay. They nest on the ground in well-concealed locations in marshy areas. The female usually lays four eggs. Both parents look after the young who find their own food and are able to fly within a month. They migrate to South America. In preparation for this migration each fall, these large sandpipers gorge on aquatic plants, an unusual diet for a shorebird. These birds gather at James Bay in Canada before the fall migration. In good weather, many birds make the trip south without stopping. They can perhaps most easily be seen in migration on the east coast of North America where they can be plentiful. The Hudsonian Godwit. This is Norm Holly reporting for WFHP. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
This week in our listening area, meet at the boathouse at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve to learn the basics of hiking. A beginner-friendly hiking 101 class will be held on Friday, March 1st from 5 to 7 p.m. Find out about gear and clothing, then take a short hike to practice. Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area's March Madness Festival will take place on Friday, March 1st, and Saturday, March 2nd. Help celebrate the return of sandhill cranes and waterfowl to the area. The kickoff banquet at the Observation Center on Friday will feature Henry Loop, a glacial geologist with IU, as the keynote speaker. Self-guided driving tours will take place on Saturday, March 2nd from 7.30 a.m. to 8 p.m. The next Mysterious Hills winter hike is scheduled for Saturday, March 2nd at Brown County State Park from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center where, where you can carpool to the head of Horse Trail A. Then you will trek off trail for approximately two miles toward one of the most beautiful places in the park. The hike is rugged, so be sure to dress for the weather and wear sturdy shoes. Join Monroe County IRIS, which stands for Identify and Reduce Invasive Species, and the City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation to learn how to identify and control invasive species. This workday will feature garlic mustard and Asian honeysuckle bush control. It will be held on Saturday, March 2nd from 1 to 4 p.m., and meet at Griffey Lake at the Boathouse parking lot. Wear long pants, long sleeves, and closed-toe shoes. Organizers recommend bringing water to drink. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, and Wes Martin. Script editors were Andrew Brown and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. This week's In Nature was written by Norm Holy. Kristen Patton engineered today's show. Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. 
bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.